Good morning, Moncton Wesleyan. As Pastor Joel would say, are you ready to study God's Word today? All right. To help us in that today, we have a special guest. It's Pentecost Sunday, as you know, and this guest is going to speak to us about the Holy Spirit. I'm excited about it, and I'm excited about the seminar that will follow this afternoon that you can be part of without any registration. Our guest uh, grew up in Belleville, Ontario. He married his high school sweetheart, Helen, and after completing his training for the ministry, took on a church plant outside of Ottawa and called the church Canada Wesleyan. It started with exactly nobody. And over 22 years, it grew to be as large as Moncton Wesleyan is today. But Dr. Elliot, as he became known uh, after he finished his doctor of ministry, began to realize that there was a sticking point in their growth. They didn't just automatically jump up to be a, become a large church. There was a real sticking point. And what he found was they had to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, just like the New Testament church did. So I'm so excited about what he has to share today. After completing that amazing uh, pastoral run, he has now been uh, at Kingswood University for the last dozen years teaching pastoral ministry to the future leaders of the Wesleyan Church. And I believe it was last summer that he was, had the honor of being elected our national superintendent for the Wesleyan Church of Canada and uh, with a mandate to help us grow belong, beyond our central district and our Atlantic district to touch Quebec and the West. And the only way that will happen is by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we invite you, Dr. Elliot, to share God's Word with us today. The man who lived directly across the street had just done the unimaginable. He'd taken his little baby, new girl, put her in her arms, walked downtown, and when he got downtown, he held her with his arm like this and took his free hand and made a little pile of sticks, took his little baby girl, placed her on top of the pile of sticks, and before anybody knew what he was about to do, he reached inside of his coat, pulled out a knife, thrust it into the heart of that little girl, and killed her. And then he set the little pile of sticks on fire and burned the body of his little baby girl. And that was the guy that lived directly across the street. The family that lived up the street, well, the kids in the neighborhood didn't like to go near that house. They would be outside playing, and as they got close to that house, they would cross the street to the other side, and the parents would say, why don't you like to go near the house? And they said, well, mom, dad, there's something eerie and kind of spooky about that house. But the adults in the community, they knew what was really going on. They knew that the people that lived in that house up the street were involved in witchcraft, and occult, and seances. And the kids didn't like to go near that house just up the street. And there was no trouble getting the men to go to places of worship in the community. Because everybody knew that the most beautiful and sensuous women in the community served there as temple prostitutes. And so getting the men to go to the place of worship, that was not a problem. 
And all the good and godly people in the community over the last little while had just kind of disappeared. But if you walked by the police station late at night, you would hear the screams of their torture coming up from the basement of the police station. And so all the good and godly people had just been disappearing over the last little while. And as you walked around town, you would see on almost every street corner, there would be a little statuette on the corner, about this big and about this high, went to Asheroth and Chemosh and Baal. And so were the days of Elijah 3,000 years ago. The reigning monarch at this time is a man named King Ahab. And the Bible describes King Ahab as a man who did more evil in Israel than any of the kings before him. And he's married to a real winner. He's married to a woman whose name, even to this day, still represents that which is bad. He's married to Jezebel. Jezebel had been the daughter of the king of Phoenicia, the next-door neighbor country. And we don't know how it was arranged, but somehow she had been given in marriage from uh, the, the king of Phoenicia to the King Ahab as his wife. But why in the world would she want to leave this beautiful, beautiful country of Phoenicia and come to this desert country named Israel? Why would she want to leave the beauty, the bounty harvest, and the, the greenery to come to this desert country called Israel? And if she's going to come by gum, she's going to bring with her the God that is responsible for the success of Phoenicia, which is the god Baal. And so when she came, she brought with her a little statuette about this big by about this big. And if you saw it, it's in the shape of a bull, cow bull, and standing on the back of the bull is this figure that represents Baal. But of course, everybody knows this is not the real god Baal. This is just a representation of the god Baal. Everybody at this point knows that the real god Baal really resides on Mount Carmel. That's the epicenter of Baal worship. And as Elijah looks around the nation that he loves, he's tremendously distressed by at this point, 93% of the Jewish people have long since abandoned the worship of Jehovah God and are now fully entrenched into this Baal worship. Well, one day, Elijah discovers that God's got an unusual call on his life. And this must have come as a complete surprise to him because he comes from this little town called Tishbe, which is on the, the very edges of Israel. It's at the end of the road, literally at the end of the road. And he discovers that God is speaking to him in ways that he can hear God prophetically. And God begins to reveal things to him about the future. And I'm sure in his early days, as he begins to, to delve into this gift that God has given to him, he begins tentatively saying, well, I'm pretty sure God told me that, that such and such is going to happen next week. And lo and behold, it happens exactly that way. And then the next time, God reveals something else about the future, and it happens exactly that way. And again and again and again, it begins to happen. And the people around Tishbe begin to say, could it be that a prophet of God has arisen in our day again? And not only is he able to speak prophetically, but God begins to work in miracles and signs and wonders and healings through him. Well, one day, God speaks to Elijah. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18. God speaks to Elijah, and he says, I want you to go and confront King Ahab, and I want you to tell him that God is not happy with the nation of Israel. God is not happy with the direction the nation is going. 
And I'm sure Elijah went, are you kidding me, God? You want me to go confront the most murderous king that Israel has ever known? You want me to go and stand in front of him and tell him that the Jehovah God is not happy with the nation? Go. And so he goes about the 100-kilometer walk. And he travels along from where he is in Tishbe, going towards Samaria, the capital city of Israel at the time. And I'm sure he's wondering, how in the world is he ever going to get an audience with the king? The scripture doesn't tell us, but somehow or another, he gets this audience. And now he's standing in the royal palace, and there's King Ahab, and there's Jezebel, his wife, and there's the hundreds and hundreds of prophets of Baal, and the hundreds and hundreds of prophets of Chemosh and Asheroth. And there's the whole royal household, and Elijah strolls in, and there's King Ahab. King Ahab, the God of Israel, is not happy with the nation of Israel. And to show that he's not happy with the nation of Israel, for the next three years, there'll be no rain any place in Israel. And with that, he boogies out of there as fast as he can get. Undoubtedly, King Ahab says, who is this nutcase who comes in and tells me, the king, that God is not happy with the nation of Israel? Ah, oh, just forget me, just some crackpot. But an interesting thing happened. For the rest of that week, it didn't rain. Well, that's not unusual. It's a desert country. And two weeks go by, and there's no rain. And three weeks go by, and there's no rain. Again, this is not unusual. This is a desert country. Four, five, six weeks go by, no rain. Seven, eight weeks go by. Two months have now gone by. The grass on your front lawn that should go Underneath your feet, now it goes It's all crunchy. And dust is starting to come up. And the little streams are beginning to dry up a little bit. Eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 weeks, three months go by, no rain. The corn that should be up someplace around here is way down here and it's brown looking. After three months of no rain, town council calls a meeting. Have you noticed the water resources for our town is getting a little bit low? I can't remember the last time. Oh, back in 73, it was that low. Oh, we need to do some water preservation. I, I, I know what we're going to do. Uh, uh, those of you who live in even-numbered houses, you can water your lawns on the even-numbered days of the week. And those of you who live in odd-numbered houses, you can water your lawns on the odd number. But we just got to kind of preserve water around here just a little bit. Four months go by. The harvest that they should have had, if they had any at all, was very, very meager that year. And five and six and seven months go by and not any rain any place in Israel. And the little streams have dried up and even the bigger rivers are beginning to, to dry up. Some of the, the wells in the middle of town that the people would go to and pull, pull their water out. They look down and there's hardly anything there. And now people are having to go further and further and further afield to get some water, to look after their cattle. And now the elderly people can't go quite as far as they used to be able to. Instead of just going to the town, now they've go to like the next community to find water. And so the elderly people are beginning to struggle with this thing a little bit. And when the kids are getting sick, there's not enough water to pat on their forehead to bring down their temperature. Eight, nine. Ten months go by. It's now time to plant for the next season. 
The farmers go out, they look, it's just as hard as, as stone out there. They know there's absolutely no sense of even planting into this condition. And so they don't even bother planting the next year. And now they're beginning to have to bring in water from further and further afield, the great big barrels of water. And, and they've already used up the, natural, uh, the, the national reservoirs of, of the grains and things. And now they have to bring it in from further and further afield. And people are getting very sick. And the cattle that are out in the fields, there's nothing green for them to eat. The lambs and the goats and the cows, there's nothing. And so the cattle out there, they're beginning to drop. And elderly people are getting very sick, and children are beginning to die. This is a national crisis that's going on. A year goes by. A year and a half goes by. Now they have completely wiped out any reservoirs of food that they had, and they're trying to import water because all the city wells and all the town wells are all dried up. This is serious. It's catastrophic. The cattle are now dying by the hundreds out there. People are sick, and there's no water, any place to be found. Further and further, trying to find some way to, to, to help the population of the, of, the, of the nation. A year and a half, two years go by, massive death by this point. People dying all over the place from starvation and lack of water. No cattle anymore, no planting, none of the harvest, there's nothing. Three years go by, massive, massive death all over the place. King Ahab is beside himself. Wasn't there somebody here like, like two or three years ago who came in here and said something about there's going to be this drought and it's going to last? Go find that troubler of Israel. Send out the secret police. You find that. You bring him here. He's the cause of all this trouble. Finally, after three years go by, God again speaks to Elijah. Go and confront King Ahab again. Are you kidding me, God? Everybody's looking for me. They're, they're supposed to kill me on sight if they find me. Go and tell him that the drought is about to end. And if he will come, I will end this drought. So on the appointed day, Elijah's standing on the top of a hill. There's a valley and there's another hill over here. King Ahab, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I'm not the troubler of Israel. You're the trouble of Israel. God says he's going to bring an end to the famine and the drought. But before he does, you have to assemble all the royal household on Mount Carmel, the epicenter of Baal worship. Bring with you all the prophets of Baal and all the royal household. And if you will do that, God will bring an end to the drought. And Elijah boogies off. Word goes out like wildfire, all over the place. Did you hear, did you hear, did you hear? The drought's about to end, but there's gonna be some big confrontation on Mount Carmel. And so on the appointed day, King Ahab and the royal household showed up, 450 prophets of, of Baal show up. Thousands and thousands of Jews have gathered there. I have been to Mount Carmel. I've been to the place where this story takes place. Elijah strolls onto the scene, there's King Ahab, there's the royal household. But interestingly, the scripture says he did not first speak to them. Instead, he turned to the masses of the Jewish people and he said, how long will you halter between two opinions? If God Jehovah is God, then worship him. But if Baal is worshiped, is God, then worship Baal. And what the scripture says is that the people stood 
in silence. And Elijah looks at these people. He looks, there's the guy right there that had just sacrificed his little baby girl and burned her body. There's the, the couple up the street that had been involved in the witchcraft and the, the seances and the occult trying to get it to rain. There's a group of men that had been to the temple prostitutes. There's the secret police in the back row trying to take down the names of all the people that are there. And Elijah, in disgust, ups the ante because the people won't say. He says, well, how about this? Would you worship the God that would answer with fire? And the people in mass, Scripture says, said, what you said is good. So for the first time, he turns back to King Ahab and the 450 prophets of Baal, and he says to them, you guys go first. And so 450 men build an altar. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us what it looks like, but you imagine 450 guys building something. I'm thinking like Tim the Tool Man, some great big monstrosity of this great big huge thing. They get some, this altar built, they put some wood on it, they find some scrawny cow, they kill the thing, they put it up on top, and now they're gonna plead with Baal. We're right here in the epicenter of where Baal's supposed to live, Oh, Baal, Baal, answer with fire. Baal, please, Baal, Baal. Come on, Baal, answer with fire. We believe in you, Baal. Come on, Baal, answer with And do you know what happened? Nothing. And so as the day goes on, they guys, these guys ramp it up, and the Bible says they pulled out swords and spears, and they begin cutting themselves, and the blood is flowing, and they, and they bring out the Billy Graham of Baal worship. I don't even know who that is. And they bring out the oldest scrolls. Oh, Baal, who art Mount Carmel, hallowed be thy name. And they're, oh, uh, Baal, come on, Baal, come on, come on, come on, Baal. Answer with her, answer with her. And you know what happens? Nothing happens. Do you know why nothing happens? Because there is no God Baal. This goes on for hours and hours and hours. And finally, Elijah says, guys, give it a rest. It's a paraphrase, but this is what he said. He says, it's my turn. And this time, the Bible does tell us what the altar looked like. The Bible says that Elijah took 12 stones. Now, how big of an altar can you build with 12 stones? If Elijah was anything remotely close to my size, I'm figuring a stone maybe about this big is about as much as I could handle. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. It can't be any higher than about that. Do you know why this is important? Because this is how Baal worship had been introduced to Israel. When Baal was introduced to Israel, what they had done was they had taken an altar, hidden a guy inside of it, and when at the appointed time for it to catch on fire, the guy inside of the altar had lit it on fire from the inside. But they couldn't do that when they had built it in front of the people. And there's certainly no way to put a guy inside of 12 stones. And the scripture says after he put together his little 12 stones, he took some wood and put it on top. And he got a calf or a cow or some killed this thing and laid it on top. And then the Bible says he cut some type of a trench around the outside of it. 
And he looked at this thing and he said, I've got four buckets here. There's hardly any water any place in Israel, but at the bottom of the hill, there's a little tiny stream. Go fill up these four buckets with water and dump it on top. Four buckets. He says, do it again. He says, do it again. 12 buckets of water on top of this altar. It fills the trench around the outside of it. And then the scripture says that he went off to the side and he prayed this itty bitty tiny prayer. And as he concluded his prayer, in front of thousands of people, fire from heaven falls from the sky, burns up the cow, burns up the wood, melts the rock, evaporates the water. The thousands of people say, did you just see what happened? Did you just see what happened? And the Bible says in mass, the nation fell on their face and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And in a moment, revival came to the nation and a nation that was hell bent on going towards Baal worship was suddenly turned and now is fully committed to the worship of Jehovah God. And I go, that's amazing. That's an amazing story. Wasn't Elijah such a smart guy to come up with this idea? What a smart idea it was for Elijah to come up with this idea that somehow there's going to be this three-year drought and then meet on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal build their thing and then the God's going to answer with, no, that's not what happened. If you happen to have your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 36, when he prayed that little bitty, itty tiny prayer, this is what he said. He said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and I have done all of these things at your command. All of this was God's idea. What brought revival to the nation was not persuasive preaching. It wasn't great worship. It wasn't a great facility. It wasn't a brand new program. It wasn't alpha. It wasn't anything like that. What persuaded the people to turn back to God was when God showed up with power and in presence. That's what brought the revival to the nation. And as I look at it, I go, under what conditions did he show up? Did God show up? It's when Elijah heard what God told him to do, did what God told him to do, and in that context, God showed up with power and presence. And I went, wait a sec. I've seen this elsewhere in scripture. Where else have I seen people coming to faith in God? How about the ministry of Jesus? Did Jesus not say, I only say what the Father tells me to say, and I only do what the Father tells me to do? Jesus goes up into the hills. He gets his marching orders from the Father. He aligns himself with what the Father says to do, and God shows up and does miracles, signs, and wonders. And I go, wait a sec. I've seen this elsewhere in Scripture where people are hearing and heeding the voice of God, and when they do, amazing things happen. How about Philip? 
Philip hears the word of God. God says to him, go south to the road that leads to Gaza. He heard what God said to do. He did what God told him to do. As a result, an Ethiopian and an entire nation came to believe in God. How about Ananias? Ananias heard the voice of God. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street in Damascus. Heard what God told him to do. Did what God told him to do. As a result, Saul is converted. How about Peter? Heard the voice of God. Go to the house of Cornelius. When he heard what God said and he did what God said, as a result, an entire family and community is saved. How about the apostles? They heard what God the Father said. Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them. They heard what God said. They did what God said. As a result, the entire Mediterranean seacoast is evangelized. How about the apostle Paul? Heard what God said. Go to Macedonia. He heard what God said. He did what God said. As a result, Lydia and her family are saved. Paul heard the voice of God. Go to Jerusalem. He did what God said. As a result, kings and princes and Caesars all came to hear the gospel message. So I ask us this morning, who amongst us does not want to see revival in Canada? And what would it take? What would it take for a nation that is hell-bent away from God to suddenly turn back to God? Do we really think it's going to be a better PowerPoint presentation or a better band or a new youth program or something like that? Do we really think that some incremental steps is actually going to have a converting persuasive influence upon people that they're going to turn in mass back to to God? You say, Steve, are you against that kind of stuff? No, I teach excellence and I teach creativity at Kingswood University to the next generation of people that are preparing for it. But I'm here to tell you, I know it's not enough. It's not nearly enough. There are times, there are times where the normal expressions of God's mercy and grace are not enough. There are times it's going to take an extraordinary expression of the love and mercy of God to break through the apathy and indifference in our nation. You say, Steve, maybe you ought to take a chill pill. You're kind of getting wound up here a little bit. Yeah, I don't, I don't mind saying I'm pretty wound up about this. You know why? Because I want to see our town come back to faith in Christ. I want to see our province come back to faith in Christ. I want to see our nation come back to faith in Christ. And I know it's not going to be done just with excellence in ministry. It's going to take place when God shows up with signs and wonders and miracles to break the apathy and indifference so the nation falls on their face and say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And God shows up when we start hearing from God and aligning ourselves with what God says to do. I don't want to come across super spiritual this morning. I don't hear from God nearly enough. But God still speaks today. I was sitting in my pastoral office up in Ottawa. It was a Tuesday morning. I remember it so well. I'm having my morning devotions. I'm sitting at my desk. My Bible's open. I'm just having my morning devotions. And just like that, God spoke to me. Thursday. One o'clock, go to this location, this person will be there, and I want you to tell them this message. It was so clear, this is back in the days of daytimers, I pulled out my daytimer, Thursday, one o'clock, this person, this location, tell them this. Thursday came around, 12.30, I get in my car, and I go to the location that God told me to go. And when I got there, The guy's car was there. 
Now I'm really nervous. I walk in. He sees me. He says, Pastor Steve, what are you doing here? I said, God sent me with a message for you. And he goes, yeah, right. I said, no. And I pulled out my day timer, Thursday, one o'clock, your name, you would be here, and God's got a message for you. Now here's what you would not know unless I tell you this. He should not have been where he was Thursday at one o'clock. He had a regular nine to five job on the far side of Ottawa. He should not have been there at one o'clock on a Thursday. How did I know he was gonna be there? Quinky dink? No, God still speaks today. Not too long ago, I won't tell you where this is because it's a rather awkward story to tell, but I was sitting in the front row of a church and I was there as a guest of the church. I had never been to that city. I had never been to this place. I knew one person a little bit and that was it. I'm sitting there and all of a sudden, just like that, God speaks to me. The pastor is seated next to me. I lean over and I said, I think God just gave me a message for your congregation. Would it be all right if I shared it with them? And he goes, I guess so. <laughs> so after the worship was over, he said, Dr. Elliot's got something he believes God has just told him to tell our congregation. Dr. Elliot, come and share with our congregation. So I came to the front in this community I had never been to in front of a congregation I had never seen before. And I said, God just told me there's somebody here or it's somebody that you know is thinking of taking the life of a baby. And God wants you to know he wants that baby to live. And there was a little bit more to it. And I finished it. And I went and sat down. And my bum no sooner hit that seat than somebody on this side of the congregation immediately stood up and said, my unwed daughter just found out she's pregnant. And we've been considering what our options were about this pregnancy. And I think that message is for me and my family. How could I possibly know that? This is not quinky dink. God still speaks today. I was in my office one day. Again, same thing as the other situation. I was having my morning devotions. Nothing special, I'm just sitting there having my morning devotions. And just like that, God spoke to me. Expect a child. It's a boy. Call him Jedediah. Here's a Bible verse for him and an insight into his life. It was so clear, I wrote it down that Tuesday morning. Helen, where are you? Are you in the room someplace? How many years have we been married at this point? Ballpark it, just roughly. We've been married 15 years at this point, and we had a serious infidelity problem. We tried everything. We'd taken medications. We'd had surgery. We'd gone to infertility clinic. We'd done everything that we'd, we'd been prayed over. We'd been anointed, all kinds of stuff. Expect a child, 
It's a boy, his name's Jedediah, Bible verse verse about him and an insight into his life. I went home and I told Helen at noon hour on that Tuesday. I can't see if there's little kids in the room. There are, okay, I can see some little kids, so work with me, adults. On Friday, what happens every month with a lady did not happen. Immediately, we said, she's pregnant, it's a boy, and we're gonna call him Jedediah. And people said, Jedediah what? (laughs) Jedediah, where'd you get a name like that? Doesn't matter, that's what we're gonna call him. That was in July. The ultrasound in December showed it was a boy. And our son is now a pastor in Nova Scotia. If we want to see our families and friends come to faith in Christ that are apathetic and indifferent, they've totally bought into secular humanism, they're going this way and totally ignoring God. I'm asking, what would it take to turn people back to faith in God? And I'm here to tell you, I believe nothing short of God showing with power and presence is going to turn our nation back to God. And he will, if we'll start hearing his voice and doing what he says to do. I'm going to sing a little song at the piano over here. And this song, the first time I heard it, it just, my goodness, it just moved me to tears because it was so descriptive of where my heart is at. And as I sing this song, perhaps... It may reflect what you're sensing is needed these days as well. And so if you wouldn't mind just bowing your heads and hearts while I sing this song, and we'll ask the Lord if this is what he wants to do in our midst. So many big but empty words. So we come before your face, asking for your grace. Bring your people to a state of kingdom life. Restore your church again. Touch your people once again with your precious. Holy hands, we pray, let your kingdom shine upon this earth through a living glorious church, not for temporary deeds, but to Broken, wounded soldiers 
Touch your 